everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast. And um, we got to talk about the problems with classical liberalism. Um, this isn't going to be the podcast that some of you that uh, would have tuned in based on the title, The Problems with uh, Classical liber- Liberalism. This isn't going to be the podcast that you think it's going to be. I'm not about to go cutting down on classical liberalism or do some weird turncoat kind of thing. Um, as you might have hoped if you're in that category, or as you might have feared if you have been following me and like what I do to defend our liberty. Um, But the fact of the matter is that for a variety of reasons, including uh, the march of time and thus the uh, changes in technology, classical liberalism needs a little help. Uh, It was formulated in the 1700s by and large, and it turns out that things are a little different than they were in the 1700s. Now, I don't think human beings are significantly different, but our um, the way that most of us live, our communication capacity, our transportation capacity, lots of things have actually changed in a very profound way. Uh, just as a very simple example, in the United States, when it was founded in the late 18th century, um, 95% of the population were small-scale farmers. It turns out that that's like 1% of the population now, and more than half of us live in urban areas. This is a completely different situation, but does it necessitate a different politics? And the answer to that question, I think, is, is really no. It does not. We need to keep an eye on our liberties. We need to keep defending our liberties, but we do need to understand that the articulation of classical liberal principles not only needs to be done, but it also needs to reflect, and I I dare say be updated, but that's not quite right. Uh, It has to develop a comprehensive philosophical and practical theory for how to deal with the vast changes to our circumstances that we face uh, after 250 years of history have marched on by. Many of those um, changes we were we allowed to be managed by the administrative state, which is in some sense this kind of neoliberal monstrosity um, that is not in fact liberal at all, and in fact has turned out to be this kind of parasitic organism latched onto free societies, and that, that it's causing many of the problems that we face. So I want to outline three general issues or problems for classical liberalism now in the, um, you know, that we're about a quarter of the way into the 21st century. And of those three, the third one has three components. That's the philosophical issue. So the first and most pressing issue, and there's, let me, before I talk about the issues, there's this massive kind of like movement of desperate, fearful people out there now who are dipping toward what has classically been called a reaction with a capital R. Um, It is the reaction that communists depend on when they say things like your target's reaction is your real action, which is a core component of their activism and philosophy. Um, There is a general increasing belief in post-liberal views. In other words, that liberalism served its purpose, and now it's time to take what we can from it and move on, move forward to something new that's no longer liberal, which means it no longer centers individual liberties at its heart. And um, 
this movement is gaining steam. The reasons this movement is gaining steam is because things are going wrong. People are noticing things are going wrong, and there is a dedicated uh, movement capitalizing on top of the general fear and concern and uh, kind of loss of direction people have. There is a general, uh, there, there's also a movement capitalizing upon those feelings to push it away from a liberal system into something. Generally, the picture is that when you are in a state of instability and things start to fall apart or things start to get bad, people become desperate for stability. And so they start reaching into a utopian future where everything will be stable, or they start looking back to a romanticized past where things were are believed to have been more stable than they are now. And they say, well, something to do with the philosophical systems that point us toward utopia or that recover the romanticized, idealized past. Something there was working and we lost it by doing this thing. So let's either plow forward progressively or let's go back. Let's return as the phrase goes. And I think that this is a desperate mistake because when you sacrifice liberty, it is extraordinarily hard to get it back. It's not impossible, but it's extraordinarily hard. And um, to throw away classical liberalism because of fundamentally not understanding what's really going on and thinking that what we need is a transformation of system when what we actually need is to A, understand the circumstances that we're in, B, develop conceptual clarity about what we're talking about, and C, uh, deal with a few fundamental philosophical issues, some of which are more philosophical and some of which are profoundly practical. That's what we actually need to do. When you understand that that's what we need to do, you don't start desperately grasping for, hey, let's create a whole new system. Historically, when we install, hey, let's install a whole new system, typically millions and millions of people die. Typically, the disruption is tremendous. So what moment are we in right now? And I don't want to get lost in this idea, but I did a podcast about it before. The moment that we're in right now is a moment of tremendous upheaval. People with classical liberalism, a lot of times we talk about like we have a marketplace. Well, our marketplace is messed up. Meaning our market economy is impinged upon by stakeholder capitalism, which is actually stakeholder distributism, which is this idea that there is an enlightened group of stakeholders who are going to figure out how to distribute the fruits and processes and labor of the economy in a more efficient way that might be tipped toward equity, in which case it tips toward communism. It might be tipped toward some other uh, value, in which case it might tip toward fascism or Nazism or some new, uh, whole new philosophy. But we have this problem that our marketplace, the liberal marketplace, capitalism as it sometimes gets called, market economies, as in Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, is uh, a marketplace. Well, turns out our marketplace is under threat. We'll talk about that. But in addition to that, what's also under threat is this idea of the marketplace of ideas. Well, we've all had this. You know, this is the liberal ideal. This is the classical liberal ideal. The ideas are in some sense actually separate from the people who created them in a meaningful way. Yes, you might want to take into account their context, but at the same time, the idea itself should be considered for its merits. Ideas can compete through the process of what's called public criticism, which relies on the two foundational pillars that were outlined by Jonathan Rausch and Kindly Inquisitors, which I covered in a recent podcast here on New Discourses, which are that no one has personal authority and no one has final say. So it doesn't matter if Einstein or John Locke or uh, Karl Marx or whoever said it, um, they don't have some special authority that says, oh, well, they said it, so it must be right. 
turns out you can be right about some things and wrong about a lot of things. And the basis of classical liberalism is the humility to recognize that that's actually true. Um, the kind of background, um, n not the philosophical statement, but the or foundation, but like the meta foundation of classical liberalism is really the belief that uh, we all might be wrong at any time. And in fact, we're all probably wrong about most of the things we think most of the time. But if we work really hard at it and we're really careful, or if the situation is um, actually simple enough, we can be right sometimes, and that we can hew toward using reason and evidence and skepticism. So it's really rationality plus uh, skepticism, which means deferring to evidence, uh, neutral objective evidence as much as possible that outlines how we determine our epistemological foundations in a liberal system. And this creates a so-called marketplace of ideas where ideas can compete, where it doesn't matter who said them. You don't get this like magic power because so-and-so said it. And it turns out that we haven't had a marketplace of ideas at all. So what's happening in the big, big picture, I did a podcast about this, welcome to the second enlightenment, I called it, is just like when the printing press happened. At the time, what we had we did not have a marketplace of ideas in the Middle Ages. In fact, that's what return sometimes wants to go back to. They don't want people being able to come up with their own ideas. They don't want, in a sense, people doing their own research. They want people to understand the orthodoxy and to follow the orthodoxy and bind together, like fascist, like bound together with a bundle of sticks, uh, around the orthodoxy because it's stable and it works and it's driven by fear and desperation. But what's happening uh, or what happened was the printing press came along and Bibles, among other things, pamphlets, even something like scientific materials could be printed and distributed to people fairly cheaply and eventually very cheaply. And what happened was it, it led to a huge reformation. It led to uh, not just Martin Luther noticing, hmm, a lot of the stuff that the Holy Catholic Church is proclaiming and all of its indulgences that built its castle. You know those those freaking accounts that are like, why don't we build this glorious, beautiful stuff anymore? Like the Vatican, which was built on literal criminal indulgences. It was literally a gigantic religious extortion racket that made it ungodly amounts of money, and they built really beautiful things with that money. Um, but anyway, uh, I digress. Martin Luther noticed, hey, guess what, guys? A lot of the stuff that we're doing isn't in here. It's not in the book. It's not in the Bible. It's just not there. And so this led him to do his revolt, his nailing of the theses to the to the church door. We all know the, the rest of history. The rest of history is that eventually there was a big fight about Pado versus Credo baptism. Luther came down very hard on the side of Pado baptism. Somebody pointed out to him that it's not in the book. And so he threw that person into a well to die. And I mean, that's kind of a bad summary of what Luther's legacy was, but that's not, it's just worth bringing up that you can become the monster you fight very easily when you get a taste of power. But what happened was it wasn't just Luther being able to notice that. It was the fact that people could then start printing quite illegally, capital crime, get your head cut off for it kind of stuff. They could start printing and distributing Bibles in vernacular languages around Europe. So if you spoke German, you could read the Bible in Luther's German, his translation from the Latin or from the Greek or from whatever. Latin was the standard at the time for the church. If you spoke English, you could read an English Bible. If you spoke French, you could read a French Bible, even though the aristocracy of France set up the language in France, the written language specifically. Why can't you spell any French words? And why don't they spell like they sound? 
Well, it's because they didn't want the peasantry to learn how to read. And so they've created complicated spellings for lots of words. Same kind of game is happening, but you could read the Bible in vernacular languages. If you learn to read, and many people started to learn to read very quickly, all of a sudden, you could learn things. You could read the Bible for yourself. You could read pamphlets, political pamphlets, for yourself. And this opened up a whole new world in the magisterium of knowledge that was centrally controlled, whether by king or by pope, started to crumble, and they lost their shit. They freaked out. They were trying to kill people who were printing things. They tried to shut down the whole thing. Same thing's happening today. So that's what the point of the Welcome to the Second Enlightenment podcast is. The internet has taken this to the next step. The internet now allows people to do their own research. You don't have to follow the aristocracy of knowledge and information that's perpetrated by the vertically integrated messaging apparatus, which is universities doing the research, journalists and politicians regurgitating the narrative in a very contoured way. We don't just have three channels anymore. We don't have this wholly bought out corrupt corporate media. We have independent people doing their own research. So where in the uh, 17th century and 18th century, you had people doing their own reading. Now you have people doing their own research, where at the time you had people learning to read so they could read the Bible in their native language, or they could read pamphlets, or they could read other materials. Now you have people learning to use the internet to research. They are learning to do their own research. They don't need the university. They don't need uh, the corrupt grant system that funds um, research. They don't need the corrupt academic publishing uh, incestuous industry to validate what research counts as we exposed with the grievance studies affair that the peer review system and academic publishing apparatus are no better than the corruption of the peers that do the reviewing and the editors that do the, the choosing and the publishing. They don't need that anymore. You can do your own research. So what's happening? Well, the powers that be are realizing, uh-oh, our aristocracy of knowledge is crumbling around us. What do we do? Well, first, we shit our pants. Then second, we install a gigantic system of control. We're going to censor the internet. We're going to talk about mis, mal, and disinformation. We'll put lots of mis, dis, and mal information out into the world so we can say, hey, look at how much of this there is. We'll stoke up people to follow it, QAnon, anybody. We'll do this, and then we'll say, wow, the internet needs to be censored. We'll attack Elon Musk for allowing free discussion to a degree on the internet. And we'll say that he's making the internet less safe. Then we'll blur the, the lines of what safety means. He's making it less safe in terms of this uh, ability to spread information that threatens the regime's power, the magisterium's power in the past, the aristocracy's power now. That's what the World Economic Forum and all these globalist hacks are. They're the new aristocracy. That's what they are. They're the aristocracy of information in some sense, and their power is getting rattled. So we're going to blend the, the meaning of the word safe for safety. Oh, he's making the internet unsafe. Elon Musk made the internet unsafe. So first it'll be that he's allowing the publication of, of hate speech, which is a bullshit idea that is just a justification for censorship. Then it's going to be he's allowing the publication of ideas that are dangerous to our democracy that's unsafe to our democracy, which means to their power, of course. And then thirdly, it's just unsafe entirely. It may be destabilizing the internet itself, which could mean two things. It could mean the community or the discussion or the emergent phenomenon of ideas and conversation and information flow, or it could mean the infrastructure of the, universe, or of the uh, internet itself. So guess what? When the cyber attacks come from Klaus Schwab's last two years of saying the next wave will be the cyber attacks, which we can guess it's an election year coming up. We, I wonder when that's going to happen. And what they're going to do is then be able to blame Elon Musk. Oh, he made the internet unsafe. And so 
bad things happened on the internet. The internet was unsafe. Elon Musk made it unsafe. Elon Musk caused the cyber attacks to be able to be perpetrated. And the call was not coming from inside the house. The call was definitely not coming from, you know, um, the, the, the regime itself. It was from bad actors hidden here and there and blah, 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 like every color revolution ever. Okay. So I've digressed a long way, but what's happening is that we never had a marketplace of ideas in the first place. The liberal ideal of a marketplace of ideas is just now emerging. And the people who ran the sham marketplace of ideas, which was the aristocracy of ideas that replaced the magisterium of ideas, which is like intellectual slavery moving into intellectual feudalism. And now we're entering into intellectual capitalism in some sense. Um, the people who control this sham marketplace of ideas, which is their aristocracy, which is their captured market, which is their British East India company of ideas, uh, they are shitting their pants and trying to gain control. And I think that what I said in that podcast was that the fire of the enlightenment ends up burning hotter than the, temp the, the, the attempts of totalitarians to control it. So it's going to burn right through that. But we haven't even talked about the problems of classical liberalism yet. I just want to set the, set the table, set the stage. So that's the moment we're in. We have to understand the moment. That's background. That's that's where we start to understand what the problems with classical liberalism are. We are in a massively upheaval-driven circumstance. We're in a period of history where the reigning system is being challenged, not by some rival system, but rather by the grassroots ability of normal people to realize that the system was mostly made out of bullshit, self-serving bullshit. And guess what? The little lords and ladies and kinglets and queenlets that were running that show are in danger of losing their own. So they're trying not just, woke by the way is reactionary too, they're trying not just to gain control over our ability to communicate. They are also trying to roll back the clock to something much more feudalistic where we have these stakeholders determining not just how our economy is going to run, our economic, our market conditions, a stakeholder capitalism, but we'll also have a stakeholder-driven information environment. In other words, they want to make permanent the aristocracy of ideas, which will actually not be an aristocracy even, but an oligarchy. Um, and we can talk about the whole Marxist um, program and how it actually bends back toward that uh, instead of achieving liberation or whatever. That's another podcast I did a long time ago, but that's another topic for another day. Okay, so that's the background. That's causing people to freak out. That's causing people to say, oh my God, classical liberalism has failed. We need a whole system change. We need to go post-liberal. We need to look at these um, different fascists, whether Carl Schmitt, whether Julius Evola, uh, whether it's you know, other, just like the woke, they want to look at other non-Western or non-liberal pathways to um, establishing a new system that, out, that, that throws out classical liberalism. The woke say they want other ways of knowing. Well, these people want other ways of stabilizing society. They don't want the turmoil and the emergence of order that comes within a uh, liberal system, which order emerges because each individual is saddled with responsibility and they act in their own interests as best they can and they stand or fall and thus the competitive system arises and winners rise to the top based on whether or not they can compete 
or that they can succeed in uh, doling out their responsibility in at least the ideal. Okay, so they're a whole new system. But the main thing to understand, what's really happening is three things. The real reason, the real problems with classical liberalism in the 21st century are three things. Number one, and it's Vexing as hell to me that these post-liberal yahoos who want a whole dreamy, oh my God, system change can't grok this is, holy shit, guys, there is a provocation happening. The communists are shooting their shot. We are in the middle of a communist revolution. If you were to start taking actual steps to stop the communist revolution by demanding the application of the law in an even-handed way and so on, we could actually uh, be in a completely different situation. We don't know what the system of liberalism or classical liberalism would look like absent this provocation because nobody was that worried about it until the provocation arose. So being in the midst of a communist revolution is the first major challenge to classical liberalism right now. And notice that's not classical liberalism. That also casts the post-liberal reaction as a uh, as the your real action as your target's reaction, right? As a part of the dialectical program or system of the communist provocation. If they can't get it through communism, they'll get it through fascism, which everybody will come to hate very quickly, and then they'll get communism in the end. This has happened in so many countries. The left gets almost a permanent moral majority after just a few years of fascism, which never really works out in practice for the same reasons that communism doesn't work out in practice. And then what happens is you've thrown away your liberty-protecting apparatus, and then when the communists take it over, they don't have to get you know get past that pesky constitution. The fascists already got rid of it for them. And so you end up in this cycle of instability that usually kind of does a few, like a little bit of left, and then it tips right. And then, whoops, we got to go way left again. And that's the story of South America, and that's the future of North America, possibly, if we end up in that cycle. And it's not a good cycle. Okay, so first, the problem with classical liberalism is it's actually being attacked by communism. It is not true. It is completely inaccurate to say that um, that communism is a product of classical liberalism. This is not true. This is a distortion by that post-liberal right. It's a preposterous distortion because they their answer to that is we need to go back to a constitutional monarchy based on uh, probably a Christian order. But literally, those same things got infiltrated by communists in the first place. Those things were, in many cases, the back door into a liberal society was through infiltrated aspects of the church. So you can't even clean up your own fucking denominations, and all of a sudden that's the answer? Like, come on, guys. But the main—I don't want to get off on that tangent again. I've done this a number of times. The main— issue facing classical liberalism today is that there's a communist provocation. And the main reason that there's a communist provocation is the exact same reason that communism was as long-lasting in Soviet Union as it was and was as successful in China and longer-lasting in China now, uh, which is that they took over education. That's it. Mao took his power in 1949 through a classic military coup. That was the CCP overthrowing the Guomindong. 
kicked him out of power using the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. He used military force and did a classic re- peasants' revolt leading to a military coup, took over the country, and the CCP installed itself. That's very similar to what the Bolsheviks did in 1917. Now, what the Bolsheviks did after they had their military coup and what the what Mao did after he had his military coup are very similar things. They immediately took over education. Lenin understood implicitly, deeply, explicitly, because he said it repeatedly, that if you take hold of the youth, then you get the future. Give me the youth for seven years and I'll plant a seed so deep you'll never uproot it. Stuff like that. He maybe even said four years because they were very ambitious with the spirit of the communism. Four, four years is equal to five years, and that's where two plus two equals five comes from in the Soviet context. Mao did the same thing. He took over in 49. By 50, he fires all the teachers. He sends them all off to be brainwashed. Nobody gets back into the classroom until they're brainwashed. All the textbooks are thrown out. They're rewritten. This happened a second time during the Cultural Revolution, as a matter of fact. Um, Xi Van Fleet, who, if you aren't listening to Xi Van Fleet about the Cultural Revolution that she lived through, you probably should be. Um, Xi Van Fleet, that's XI Van Fleet is a wonderful resource. She tells a story about how when she was in school one year, they had gotten rid of all the textbooks because they weren't sufficiently communist, and their textbook was literally just Mao's Little Red Book. That was in the 60s, not in the 50s. But Mao took over education completely and made sure that it did nothing but brainwash people into his system from 52, maybe a little bit earlier, all the way through when he launched the Cultural Revolution using those radicalized kids in 1966. So everybody who was 14 years old or older had heard nothing in their education. Sorry, 14 years old or younger had heard nothing, literally nothing in their education except what Mao had turned education into. The Soviets did the same thing. They understood you had to take over education. Lukács and Gramsci understood the same thing. Marcuse echoed it after Rudy Deutschke talks about the long march of the institutions is that you have to go into education at all levels. They, the critical turn in education occurred because all those 60s radicals who couldn't radicalize society the straight way went into education, and we've had a 60-year generational project to corrupt education to generate a modern-day Western Red Guard using Western Marxist theories like critical race theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, fat studies, disability studies, and we could go on and on and on about all the different models of intersectional thought, ethnic studies, all that, all the seeds for all of that started in the 1960s, and the radicals who created it went into education understanding that the success of Mao's Cultural Revolution in 1966, which they praised, which they thought was great, which they were, spoke highly of, which they chanted Mao Marx, or Marx Mao Marcuse, Marx Mao Marcuse was a chant in the 60s. That was the model that they used. Paulo Freire says in a footnote in chapter one of Pedagogy of the Oppressed that his model of education is based off of the model in Mao's China. They understood that if they wanted to get Western civilization, they had to get education. So we have a communist style revolution really led by a youth rebellion in this country, not just because of relentless media propaganda and all of the other aspects, but because they control education. So our education system rotted out, not like yesterday, but it's been generational. Our professional class has been transformed, our incoming professional class, an entire generation of younger professionals, probably almost everybody under 40 is tainted by this. And so it's a very receptive audience for a cultural revolution. The same thing's happening. So this is 
the first and most important problem with classical liberalism is that it actually let it left the back door open largely because Paulo Freire's model came from liberation theology, which was a Catholic perversion. And a lot of this came in through churches for the last 20 years, trying to be hip and bringing in lots of woke theory to their, um, to the, to the pulpits. They brought this in a lot through religion. A lot of it had to do with the social gospel that was, was pioneered by Walter Rauschenbusch back in, uh, like Oh five after he studied with the Fabian socialists in England uh, with, uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb that he stayed with. This leftism was brought in through religion and through education overwhelmingly. Okay, so the first of the problems of classical liberalism is that it is actually being provoked by a communist revolution. We should be working to stop that revolution and not to channel the energy of that revolution into a reaction that's actually the second hand of the revolution. But we don't, we don't know what classical liberalism would be able to do with the other challenges it faces outside of that provocation, so long as the, the stinger, the thorn, is still stuck in the body. In other words, as long as they're still stabbing us with a communist revolution, of course there's fear and desperation and a belief that the system is failing. But to make the mistake of believing that the system itself as an extension of classical liberalism is a fundamental misunderstanding of liberalism, which leads us to the second major problem of classical liberalism. The first is the communist provocation, which is a revolutionary attempt to overthrow the West or to stimulate a reaction that will overthrow the West. The second is we don't actually know what the word classical liberalism means or what the word liberalism means. That word suffers a massive amount of pollution from what's known in the fancy pants way of saying it as conceptual polysemy. In other words, multiple meanings attached to a single word or concept. So what we have is the problem is that the progressives branded themselves liberals. They became the avatars of liberalism. They're not liberals, they're progressives. They've only very recently gone back to trying to uh, reclaim the term progressive for themselves. It's a completely different mindset. But for especially your average dipshit low IQ conservative who has a fucking show, the liberals are doing this. The liberals are doing that. The liberals are doing that. They're not the fucking liberals, guys. It's the left. They're leftists. They are not liberals. They are against liberalism. They tell you they're against liberalism on every page that they write almost if you bother to read it. Mao wrote a thing that was literally called against liberalism. Liberalism is seen as a huge problem to these people. They tell you again and again the Critical Race Theory book starts, the first paragraph, Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk starts by saying that uh, it distinguishes itself from classical liberalism and in fact is hostile, is critical of classical liberalism, liberalism in general. So it's not that. So all these big dudes with a show, at this point, I'm almost like, are you a caveman? Are you controlled opposition? Or are you doing it on purpose? Like you're not even controlled opposition. You're literally an infiltrator for people who are still persistently calling what this Marxist monstrosity that's coming out of the Democrats and the left more broadly, that are still calling that liberal. But the reason that happens is because progressive and liberal were two words that made it. And the progressives started holding up this banner, falsely claiming themselves to be the true inheritors of liberalism. But there's another group of people who did that as well, which were the neoliberals, many of whom, this is very confusing, were also neoconservative. Because neoliberalism refers to this kind of view of an unfettered market, which what it turns out to do is allows for con uh, concentrations of corporate power um, 
and in fact fusions of the corporation and the state that uh, are a huge part of the problem that we face now. Stakeholder capitalism, for example, is predicated off of this concept of the public-private partnership taken to this very extraordinary extreme, um, which is what? Uh, the public sector and the private sector are in bed together. They're in partnership. They're working together. Vivek Ramaswamy says it very well. What they can't accomplish through the front door of the government, they accomplish through the back door of corporations. In other words, what they're doing is they've got these revolving doors, and there's really three domains, not two. It's not corporate and um, in government. It's corporate government and nonprofit or NGO. There's a revolving door between these things. The leaders of the administrative bodies that work for the government, it's not just like lobbying and corporate bribes and all of this nasty crap and recognizing corporations as people and all this, like like we've talked about, in the, or like many people have talked about in the past. There's also this revolving door where your regulatory bodies like the FDA or the CDC or whatever are frequently staffed by people who are industry leaders who have massive industry biases and they can make tons of money going back and forth between corporate leadership roles and regulatory ent entities in the government. Meanwhile, they're over there meeting at Davos and in other places coordinating. I keep telling people what Davos represents, what the World Economic Forum represents, in addition to a few other things is mostly an opportunity for business leaders and nonprofit leaders or NGOs and um, heads of state or leaders within the state to get together and decide where the pot of gold is going to be in the future. Basically, they're shooting out the rainbow so you can go to the pot of gold. What do I mean by that? Well, business businesses want to know where they should, people want to know where they can invest, where they invest, whether it's to make things with their businesses or to dump investment capital. And what happens is they come up with these schemes to say, oh, maybe we need a lot of ed technology that focuses on social emotional learning and AI implementation. And then what happens is the people that work in the state aspect of the public-private partnership say, well, we can make sure that there's a fav favorable regulatory environment for the industry captains who want to do this. And the industry captains say, hey, I can make a lot of money by doing this. And here's how we make sure there's regulatory capture so there's no real competition in the market. So we enhance our oligarchy. We enhance our stuff. So they make a deal with one another working together so that the um, regulatory environment, the legal environment, the with schools, it's even crazier with education because it can just literally say, this is the new direction we're going in education. Everything's going to be done on you know, this kind of laptop or this kind of software and tons of money is going to be now available. What kind of money? Taxpayer money. Money straight off the government tit. That's what kind of money. School choice actually works this way too. You have big organizations, big corporations like, um, like Walmart like the Walton Family Foundation, and they lobby the hell out of school choice. They also tend to fund some of the Drag Queen Story Hour stuff that makes people want school choice in the same states in many cases. So they lobby the hell out of this. And then what? Well, what they're going to be able to do is create franchises of charter schools or something like charter schools, whatever the next generation of them is, start playing economies of scale, box independent competitors out of the market and within five to 10 years, corner most of the market and guess who's actually paying them for the government or for the big corporate 
enterprise that the schooling enterprise that they've created. Maybe they run, you know, 2000 schools across the United States and okay, that's a whole lot of schools. And who's paying for that? Well, the parents are because it's school choice, universal school choice, but where's the parents getting the money from the government? It's in other words, a wealth redistribution scheme. But the goal of neoliberalism here is to stick a tap straight into the government, straight into the corporate uh, pocketbook. So it could happen through education like that. It could happen through the public-private partnership deals. The military-industrial complex is maybe the most famous of these. There are all kinds of examples with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, this is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism isn't actually what it was billed, like Milton Friedman or whatever, uh, as like this kind of unfettered um, corporate ability. People can b- build whatever company they want, totally free market as close to laissez-faire as you can have it. It turns out it was never that because it also has a very favorable lobbying and, uh, and regulatory environment so that the corporations can basically buy the business environment from the state that they want. And that is neoliberalism. But guess what the word is in there? Liberalism. So there's a lot of confusion, conceptual polysemy, between liberal and progressive and neoliberal. This is why what I say about uh, school choice all the time is it's not a conservative policy. It's a neoliberal policy selling itself as a conservative policy because the goal is actually to create a very large corporate body that gets to stick its financial tap into the government. And the whole contracting game, like the military industrial complex, lots of construction stuff is actually built off of this crooked ass model, which is in fact not liberal. And in fact, it largely relies upon the fact of the administrative state, which is a weird extension of the executive branch that gets to act like the legislative branch by creating de facto law through policy that is authorized by Congress, but kind of in this idiotic block manner where nobody's really ever looking at anything. And what, what a disaster. So this is your construction of the deep state that wants to keep itself going. It's got its own interests. This is that parasitic thing. So we don't know what liberal means. So we're being attacked by an anti-liberal philosophy called communism. That's the first problem with classical liberalism today. Massive provocation. But at the same time, we can't defend it because we don't even know what the hell it is. The word liberal in the minds of the average fairly informed, not low information moron, fairly informed person means a lot of things. It means kind of wishy-washy Democrat progressive types. It means hardcore progressives who are actually leftists. It means classical liberals, but we usually call them libertarians, but libertarianism is a little bit different actually. And it means neoliberals who are in fact um, not that. They're distributists as well. They are actually, they are crony capitalists trying to create public-private partnership opportunities through the government in order to make lots of money in the fake name of capitalism. So it turns out, liberal. how are you going to defend liberalism from the assault on it that's coming by way of communism if you don't even know what liberalism is? So that's the first two problems. And the third one, when I first started to plan this podcast, the third one was all I was going to talk about. It's three big questions that have to be answered for us to deal with a liberal system. In other words, a system that uh, values individual liberties in the 21st century. And there are some big problems here. Um, So the first is communist provocation. The second is conceptual polysemy means we don't even know what the word liberal means in order to be able to defend it. We're not clear on its roots. We're not clear on what it is. You have a bunch of yahoos from uh, the far 
the dissident right. They're not far right. They're like the right hand of the left. But the dissident right running around trying to say all kinds of crazy shit about like Rousseau being a Enlightenment thinker and therefore part of the liberal tradition. Rousseau was not part of the liberal tradition. He was literally counter that. That's insane. Um, and he he's literally responsible for the left wing, as we would describe it now, the left wing romantic reaction against the Enlightenment. So to call him an Enlightenment thinker because he was a prominent name dabbling in similar ideas at the similar time is to completely miss what was going on with the idea of um, being able to favor our capacity for reason and skepticism to adjudicate in differences of opinion, which is really the heart of the Enlightenment liberal pro project. It is not to believe that sincerity and this kind of romantic mysticism and all this other shit that Rousseau was into and self-serving libertinism are, are liberal because it's liberal in the sense of being liberal in what you're allowed to do, yet more conceptual polysemy. This is um, negligent. It's like it's beyond negligent. It's perhaps likely knowingly malicious, but at the best it is criminally negligent. Uh, well, not criminally, technically, I don't know the right word, but more than regular negligent uh, on the part of the, the post-liberal dissident right, as they call themselves, to promote this com complete misunderstanding of liberalism Maybe they're doing it, maybe they're actually doing it largely honestly because of the conceptual polysemy. But the third problem is that liberalism actually does have some issues that time has brought and technology have brought into the 21st century, and we've got to start doing these. And the three big issues, just to summarize them up front, are one, we don't have a great theory of the individual anymore. Number, which sounds crazy, but it's true. It's not my area of expertise, but at any rate. And then two, um, ownership is complicated now. The idea of owning private property, one of the three things that the individual is secured in, according to classical liberalism, is his right to property. But that's complicated now. It's literally complicated now because of technological advances. And we've got to reckon with that and figure out what ownership means in this weird world that's largely kind of this hybrid world um, predicated off of digital advances mostly, but not even only. And then thirdly, uh, and kind of even more deeply than the concept of ownership is the concept of privacy. I think that one of the fundamental premises of liberalism is that there is a protection for the, um, for, for the sanctity of conscience of the individual. Well, you have to have a theory of the individual for that, and you do have to protect his property, which is complicated in order to secure it. But at the same time, the conscience is a matter of one's private reflection, one's time with oneself in some sense. It's something that's supposed to be immune from especially state interference, but powerful interference. Uh, and that requires a sense of privacy. In other words, liberalism grants and should be securing a reasonable expectation of privacy, certainly within private spaces, but also, again, with the word reasonable expectation, doing a lot of work here, reasonable being the word that's doing a lot of work, a reasonable expectation of privacy, even in public spaces. And those things, because of technological transformation uh, in the last century especially, 
are difficult. What is what is the private space? What's the line between public and private? So let me just kind of go through these three questions. I'll summarize and we can get out of here. Okay, so the first one is what is the individual? Now, this wasn't my idea, so I don't want to dive too hard into this. I was having dinner with the philosopher Stephen Hicks, which if you don't listen to Stephen, I really recommend you listen to Stephen. He's really tremendous uh, in how thorough his thinking is and his articulation is is very brilliant and easy to follow. Um, I encourage you to read his book, uh, Explaining Postmodernism, which he wrote in 2005, and it was, which is extraordinarily pertinent today, even 18 years later. So I encourage you to check out Stephen Hicks. But I was having dinner with him a little over a month ago, getting on two months ago. And we were talking, and he said that one of the reasons for everything going mad right now, and he has this whole like kind of chain of events thing, where he says is that there's been no robust theory of the individual really since John Stuart Mill. So we're talking roughly a decade before the Civil War in the United States, 1850-something. I think on liberty, just, I mean, I have a copy of it near me somewhere here, but I think it was like 1857 give it plus or minus a decade. I don't know exactly. Maybe it's a little more, but in over a century, maybe 150 or more years, we have not had a robust articulation of a philosophical theory of the individual, but we've had a lot, whether it's communism, whether it's fascism, whether it's, uh, you know, the linguistic turn into structuralism and all of these things, we've had a lot of attacks on the concept of the individual as whatever the individual is. And so he said that right now, most of the great work that was done at the end of the 18th century and leading up to that on defining the individual so that you can define individual rights um, can be taken apart by a smart uh, college sophomore in philosophy, which that's not good. That I mean, right now, college sophomores can barely manage to do anything but chant slogans and show up to protests, stop hiring college graduates. But I think we can take what he means for for granted here and that somebody who has done even just a little reading is going to be very conversant in these attacks on the concept of the individual, partly playing off of exactly what the post-liberal right does by going into the places where, for example, John Locke was dead wrong. John Locke forwarded the concept of the blank slate. He was dead wrong about that. He talked about the social contract, which Rousseau took off in this other direction that became kind of defining of tyranny in the in in the West ever since. The, the whole social Gnostic program is built off of the idea that certain enlightened people understand sociality better than other people and therefore should be in charge of the social contract and enforcing it and making sure everybody participates with it. And so there are a lot of places to pick holes in John Locke or Isaac Newton or Bacon. You can point out that Bacon and Newton, for their own parts, for certain, I don't think it's true of Locke, who is quite devout, uh, were mystics. They were they're alchemists and wizards of their own kind. They were esotericists, and that that informed their interest in science. Tycho Brahe is another, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that was into mysticism. I mean, it was very common at the time. And so they're able to characterize liberalism and enlightenment thinking as a mystical project um, that was riddled with errors and that uh, never understood even its central concept, which is the, the individual right, and per- mostly failed to talk about what the, the individual needs from his society as a member of an ultra-social species, which is, you know, a coherent narrative, 
We hear that one a lot. Uh, system, uh, widely agreed upon system of morality, a ethnicity in a sense of uh, of a people and as as a nation or whatever, and an identifiable folk as a nation. Really, this was it's hot again today on the dissident right, but it was very, very hot through the 19th century and late 18th century in Germany, where there was a different kind of reaction to the enlightenment going on. And so there are lots of reasons to, to see there are lots of ways that the, the concept of the individual is being attacked. One of those is also to say that liberalism by exalting the individual atomizes the individual, removes him from his relational context to other people, which when I phrase it like that, you might forget that I'm talking about right-wing attacks on uh, the individual rather than saying something woke because the woke say the exact same thing is that it's, it bulldozes the relational aspects of our communal or group um, uh, existence. And so I don't know what a robust theory of the individual looks like. I've taken a couple stabs since I had the conversation with Stephen. He told me he has a great theory. I look forward to seeing that when he puts it out um, that he's been brewing up. But and just to point out, he did mention, of course, he's an objectivist. So uh, of course, he's familiar with Ayn Rand. So all of my Ayn Rand objectivist fans out there, calm down. He, he acknowledged Ayn Rand was a great thinker, but he also acknowledged that she put forth most of her philosophy, not all, most of her philosophy in the form of novels, which is a great way to communicate it, but it is not the same thing as doing hard, rigorous philosophy. So he said there's been this chain of intellectual to educational to everyman uh, kind of progression that has abandoned the idea of the individual because they don't know what the individual is. So a robust theory of the individual is necessary. I think that the individual is the um, is the place where a conscience lives. It is, at the end of the day, the thing that can uh, choose to believe or not believe. It is, at the end of the day, the thing that can, can say, yes, I assent or no, even if the whole tide of mankind is against me, I desist. And only an individual can do that. And of course, we are each individuals, whether we are embedded in social networks or not. So there, if I was going to guess, I don't know what Stephen's theory will look like, we will need a robust articulation of what the individual is, but also how the individual embeds as an individual within networks. And that is going to be social networks and networks of networks and all of this. This is going to be absolutely crucial to a 21st, understand, 21st century understanding of the individual. And you can't secure individual rights without understanding the individual rather than thinking in terms of folk or groups or nations or populations or ethnicities. We need to be thinking in terms of networks, which is how we actually create uh, relationships with one another. But that doesn't, we are not defined in terms of our network or our networks. And our networks are not static objects. And it's a, it is absolutely crucial to liberty that while you might be informed by or exhorted by, maybe even in some ways coerced by, although that goes outside of the, um, the realm of, of what we consider to be fair play in the liberal system, uh, your network that's around you to subscribe to certain views, you have to be able to say no. And the individual is the thing that can, at the end of the day can say no. If you're in a religious context, uh, a Christian context, I should say specifically, but it could be others, the individual in Christianity 
is the thing that decides to give itself over to Christ. It's not a group. It can't be a group. It must be the individual. So from a Christian perspective, it's definable. If we take a perspective from Islam, Islam means submission. Okay? I'm not going to endorse Islam. I don't think it's great. But what I will say is, it is the at the end of the day, the individual who decides to submit to Allah if we take it in a spiritual way. Now, if it means submitting to the magisterial authorities, that's something different. That's collectivist. But to submit to the will of Allah is something completely different. And the person that decides to do that is always the individual. And so the conscience of the individual to be able to figure out what that means and assent to it or desist from it or other pressures, peer pressures of other kinds, uh, is sacrosanct in classical liberalism. And part of the reason is because that's actually what we understand the individual to be. But how does an individual embed not within society so much as the networks around him that go on to define many parts of his personality, character, his psychosocial valuation schemas, and all of these things. This is something that's all going to have to be taken into account. How do we deal with these assaults from identity, whether it's woke identity politics, whether it's this queer identity stuff, generally it's social identity. How do we mix social identity taken to its extremes is a conflict-oriented theory of people in politics. It's known as the friend-enemy distinction, which was articulated in the concept of the political by Carl Schmitt. He was a big, big, he was the crown jurist of the Third Reich, so he was a Nazi, but he's a big, big, um, big name among the dissident right in terms of philosophy. He's, they're like, oh yeah, he had politics right. It is the friend-enemy distinction. But what that really is, is it's robber's cave all over again, uh, turned into claim that that is the essential concept of what the political realm is, which is bizarre. Uh, but that's predicated off of social identity where it turns malignant, um, as a matter of fact. But social identity is a part of our psychosocial valuation schema. In other words, of, of our personal identity, who we see ourselves to be in our own eyes and in the eyes of others, which is part of the theory of the individual that each individual subscribes to. So what I'm saying is it's complicated and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but we lack a clear, robust theory of the individual. And therefore, how can you possibly have a system that's designed to secure individual rights and to hold up the individual and individualism as sacred if you don't know what an individual is. It's kind of like we can't defend liberalism if we don't know what liberalism even means. But if we don't, this is different. This is almost an ontological question. It's what in the hell is an individual? Given all that we know about our genetic influences, our social influences, and on and on, ideological influences and so on, what in the hell is an individual? A robust theory is needed to go forward. I'm not claiming to have answers to these questions, by the way. I'm just telling you the questions that liberals need to be thinking about and answering rather than trying to come up with grandiose schemes for a whole new system, which will inevitably drive millions of people into a blender and probably will hand over uh, the keys to the castle to the big oligarchical monsters who have all the power right now. They hold all the institutions, so we're going to have a whole new system. Yeah, they have all the institutions, asshole. They're just going to take your system from you too. They're going to let you build it, and they're going to take it away from you. Duh. But anyway... So that's the first of the three big questions. So, And I hate to keep summarizing, but let's summarize what we've covered so far. The problems with classical liberalism are three. 
The first is that we are under the provocation of a communist revolution that is central, that is an acute attack on our system. So that's like all acute medical situations. You have to deal with the bleeding before you start trying to fix the underlying problem. We're not even stopping the person from stabbing us yet. We're not even to the point of trying to stop bleeding. The person's literally still stabbing us. So that's the communist revolution part. Secondly, we don't know what liberalism means because the idea has been watered down to mean many very contradictory things. And we are not even to the point of the slightest amount of linguistic discipline around that yet, or conceptual discipline around that yet, and that has to be fought for. And then third, there is there are three fundamental philosophical problems underneath um, classical liberalism as time has marched on, one of which is that we lack a theory, a comprehensive theory of the individual that is updated to what we know about human beings that we've learned since the end of the 18th century, for example. But a second one is property rights. So the idea of classical liberalism, as enshrined, Locke wrote it, and Jefferson enshrined it in our Declaration of Independence, is that uh, all men are created equal and endowed. That means politically equal, guys. It means that we have equal amounts of intrinsic political authority, which is effectively zero. And um, it does not mean that we are all equally capable. Stop blurring together contexts and meanings. It has never meant that. It was never intended to mean that. Duh. Come on. That's a fucking woke trick. That's bottom shelf. That's lame ass. It's pathetic that it's had so much success. Um, here almost every fucking day on social media, it kills me. Okay, I'm swearing a lot. These people really, really, really irritate me because they should know better. But at any rate, ownership has really changed. Because what Jefferson said we have to secure the idea of the individual, we are endowed by our creator with uh, inalienable rights among certain inalienable rights among these are life, liberty, and property. I add to that a certain expectation of privacy, which we'll come back to in point number three. But the reason is simple. It, Jefferson said pursuit of happiness, which means property and the ability to use it to f- profit, fortune, or, or, or happiness uh, to, to one's own desires, to satisfy your wants, your interests, your needs. So it's not enough to have property. You have to be able to use your property to pursue uh, the satisfaction of your needs and to some degree wants. So that's pursuit of happiness. Okay, fine. Why do you have to secure those? The liberal theory is very simple. If you can kill me, lock me up, or deprive me of my property, the ability to use it, make use of it as I will, then you can control how I think. You can compel me or force me at gunpoint, through robbery, through privation, you can force me to believe certain things. You can force me to profess allegiance to the state. You can compel me to profess allegiance to a false god. You can compel me to denounce my faith, denounce my family, denounce my religion, denounce anything. If you have the power to control my life, liberty, or access to and use of property. Okay, so those things are intrinsic to securing the fundamental liberty of human beings, not because they are in and of themselves inalienable, but because they actually protect the truly sacred thing, which is the individual conscience that uh, should not be allowed to be compelled, especially by state actors or other concentrations of power. Okay, so that's the idea well, property is complicated. If it's a shovel, let's say that it's 1780 
and you know you have a shovel and you're on your farm like 95 percent of people and your neighbor wants to borrow your shovel you can either write a contract for the exchange or not it can be a verbal contract or whatever but you know who the who owns the shovel and if your neighbor breaks the shovel you you know who broke it and he he owes you for the cost of the shovel or to replace the shovel or something of the kind, right? So when you have physical objects, ownership is a lot more clear. Um, I own a deed in a sense. I do own a deed to my house. Uh, I own a title to my car. I, in a, in a you know abstract sense, have a deed to the objects that I own in my house. Here sitting on the desk, I have a pair of glasses. I have a knife. I have a book, I have some other books, I have a laptop, a microphone, I have these things. And in some sense, there's, I own them. I have, in a sense, a title or a deed to them, at least abstractly speaking. And so ownership is mine. I uh, went through a process that we recognize as legitimate to have obtained them and to claim ownership to them, and they are my private property now. And so, okay, that's easy enough. Well, I've written some books. I've written some books. And so I have intellectual property. Walt Disney created Mickey Mouse. That's intellectual property. Can I go make a knockoff Mickey Mouse? Or can somebody just go reproduce my books and sell it? Well, no. We recognize copyrights. We recognize trademarks. I remember going to the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta earlier this year. It's just kind of a lark. That's a thing to do when I was there. And one of the things I noticed was that... Um, two things I noticed. The Coca-Cola Museum is actually not worth going to, but it's just like a huge commercial. But I picked up two interesting things, at least from going, one of which is that the original idea, you know, the iconic Coca-Cola bottle, and you know, it's shaped in a very particular way. They designed the bottle specifically with the intention being so that, uh, and I can't quote it exactly, but the quote is painted on the wall there by a picture of the bottle and one smashed on the ground. And it says that they wanted the bottle to be so iconic that you could identify it by feel alone or in the dark, even if it's broken. So the idea was to create a piece of intellectual property that says the thing inside this bottle is Coca-Cola, and then to make it so nobody else can replicate that shape of bottle so that it's identifiably Coke. And to be honest with you, I know Christmas is coming up and a lot of you are very excited about Santa Claus. Um, the Santa Claus that we know and love is also largely a trademark of Coca-Cola. It is largely a Coca-Cola product. Uh, how they scored that, that marketing angle, I don't know. That's an interesting story that I'm sure has been told that I don't know. But at any rate, in a sense, Coca-Cola has a pretty hefty claim on certain images and, and, and issues to do with Santa Claus. Well, a second thing is that all through the Coca-Cola Museum, they talk again and again and again about Coca-Cola being the real thing. You've probably heard that slogan, the real thing. Remember they came out with New Coke and New Coke sucked and they sent it back to Coca-Cola Classic. Was that a big marketing ploy? I don't know. They suggest even in the museum that maybe it was a mistake and maybe it was a marketing ploy. Who knows? Hmm, very suspicious. Who cares? The idea is that they called Coke the real thing. They still call it the real thing. Why did they call it the real thing? Well, because when it was invented about 150 years ago, it was just some dude, I forgot the guy's name, literally stirring this shit with a paddle in a cauldron, <laughs> making, there's like a statue of it there, making a formula of Coca-Cola syrup, which involved all kinds of pharmaceuticals. It was basically treated as medicine. By the way, kids, 
out there drinking your 20-ounce Coca-Colas. The original serving size of Coca-Cola was 5 ounces. It was 1 ounce of syrup and um, either 4 or 5 ounces of warm water, which eventually by mistake became warm soda water. It served at room temperature, dissolved the soda, drank it as medicine, which it contained some pretty potent pharmaceutical compounds in addition to its flavoring elements. And um, so when you drink that 20 ounce, you're drinking like four servings of Coke. The original 16 ounce bottle was not a single serve. It was sold as family size. It was to serve three. Um, Mom was doing the dishes, so she wasn't allowed to have any. Uh, But dad and the kids got to have a Coca-Cola. Family size, 16 ounces. And why are we fat? Mm, Well, that's one reason. Uh, So anyway, why was it called the real thing? Well, because there were tons. Why is that a marketing thing in the iconic bottle? Well, because there were tons and tons and tons and tons of knockoffs. So Coca-Cola's like, don't get confused by the knockoffs. This is the real thing. The real Coca-Cola, the real thing. That's how it became its marketing slogan. There's a ton of stuff in the museum about that. And so here we are. Now we're in this realm where I can produce a thing that's easily replicable. So maybe it was a shovel and you just steal my shovel idea and you make one too. I don't know. But something that's in a sense more abstract, like the shape of a bottle or a marketing design as a trademark or a piece of intellectual property. This is old. This isn't new. This is 150, 120 year old property law. But who really owns that? Like, let's say I buy a book or I buy a Coca-Cola. I own the Coca-Cola that I bought. I own the bottle. I can keep the bottle. I can sell the bottle. I can do a lot of things with the bottle, but I don't own the design of the bottle. I can't intentionally reproduce the design of the bottle except under certain circumstances. If I own a book, I own the book, but I don't own the intellectual property inside of it. But the intellectual property is what? It's abstract. And so property law already got weird a long time ago. And there were huge fights about this regarding Disney. That's why I brought up Mickey Mouse a little bit ago. That's his whole thing. Part of the reason why not all of the reason, there are woke reasons and there are lazy reasons and there are bad reasons, but part of the reason why they're having to do reboots of all these old movies and making them terrible at Disney is because if they don't do something to re-up the brand, they can lose uh, exclusivity on the copyright because they last like 75 years or something like that. Uh, And then things go into the public domain, at which point anybody can use them. They become kind of common intellectual property. Okay, but this gets weirder because we've entered into this realm of the digital Well, digital property is really strange. So here are two examples. This is a big one. Well, both are big ones, actually. But let's talk about the concept of right to fix. Right to fix is a huge issue for farmers in particular, but not just for farmers, um, for a lot of people. But right to fix is, do you have the right to fix your own equipment? So if you're a farmer, this really matters. So if you have a tractor and your tractor breaks down or a harvester, or a combine, it doesn't matter, some piece of equipment. We're going to just say a tractor to symbolize all the rest. These things are freaking expensive. They're absolutely necessary to the job you're doing. Let's say your tractor breaks down. Say it was 50 years ago. Your tractor breaks down. What are you going to do? Well, it's harvest. you got to fix it now. You don't have a lot of option. It's not even like planting. Like planting, there's a window, and you got to try to time it good. Some other things are windows, and you got to time. Harvest, the shit is ripe when it's ripe. And if you wait a day, it falls off under the ground. You have to harvest when you have to harvest. You do not have an option. There is very little flexibility in farming around harvest. Harvest is hard. Harvest is before dawn to past dusk. Work every day to glean as much as you can during the few weeks long window during which that's supposed to happen. 
This is for real. And if your tractor breaks down, you better be able to get your tractor going again or your combine or your whatever. You better be able to get it going again now. Okay, enter the world of the 21st century. So tractors today are super, super high tech. And they have lots of cool stuff going on, including all these cool high tech abilities to monitor the soil, density, water, minerals. I don't know what kind of sensors they have. They have all kinds of sensors on them. But that's And they've got these damn computers. We're all used to these computers and everything, right? There's a computer that not just is it gathering this data and monitoring stuff, but the thing is run, like the fuel injections run by a computer. And there's all this, like when your car breaks down now, you can't just go get a greasy and fix it. Like there's complicated electronics that has to happen. And then think about it. If if you're not a farmer, let's go back to your car. You've probably had something come up with your car. Let's say that you're driving, your stupid oxygen sensor went, south or whatever as they do the mass airflow sensor gets gunked up and you have to spray it with with the cleaner and they'll lie to you and charge you 180 or 280 dollars to replace it when really it's like a six dollar can of cleaner you just take the thing out spray it and the can will last you like literally longer than your car um i digress you just have to know how to do it um but the stupid check engine light comes on. So let's say that you clean your mass airflow sensor. If your car is old enough, like mine, I put it back in and it resets the whole thing and my check engine light goes off. Uh, let's say your car is slightly newer. Well, it has an error code in the computer now. And I know this is because my wife's car is seven years older than my car. So there's a gap in their model years of seven years and hers works one way and mine works the other. If I just go clean her mass airflow sensor for her, turns out the check engine light doesn't go off by itself. You have to plug a thing in and have to type a code in. If the battery dies or whatever, or it gets disconnected, she gets some work done, they disconnect the battery, they do the thing, like maybe taking the mass airflow sensor out, just to disconnect the battery. Well, now your stupid, um, you know, panel, console panel doesn't work right until somebody types in a fucking code, usually at the dealership, which might cost you a hundred bucks and you have to schedule an appointment. This is what I want to talk about with the tractors, because with right to fix, there's all this software going on in the tractor, and now you don't have the right to fix your own tractor. And if you try to change out a part, let's say that something breaks, you know exactly what to do, you change it out, well, the error code is put into the computer until an official representative of the corporation, John Deere or whatever, comes out and puts in the thing and plugs it in and resets the computer and takes the error code off, you can't use your tractor. That might take a while. Imagine how many tractors have problems during the busiest season of tractor time during harvest. So all of a sudden you have this major problem. You can't fix your own tractor. Your tractor, which you paid a half a million or a million dollars for, doesn't even work until somebody, and I said tractor, I probably mean combine in that case, until somebody comes out and plugs the thing in and puts the code in, or you figure out some illegal way to hack it, like when you hack your phones or whatever else, so that you can get past those features that lock you out of your own device. That's a problem. So do you own your tractor? The answer is no, kind of you don't because you can't really do, you can't pursue your happiness with it for certain. You can't really do with it what you want or need to do. You can't fix it. You can't customize it. You can't do anything that goes outside of what the manufacturer's system says that it's going to do with a approved manufacturer person coming to do it. This, I think, by the way, if I remember right, is also why the ice cream machine never works at McDonald's because of some fucking code that has to get typed in by some proprietary thing that was this huge scam that McDonald's got sucked into. I saw a video about it once. It was amazing. So do you really own your ice cream machine? Do you really own your tractor? Do you even really own your car? Well, sort of you might not. Maybe you just lease your car. 
by default, you might kind of own your tractor, but it's sort of a default lease because you can't own the copyright to the software that operates the tractor, and therefore you can't modify things because that might interface with the software differently and require software changes, and you're not allowed to do that. See, this is where this all gets all weird. Copyright law starts going into physical objects law. It's not about just your shovel or your tractor anymore. All of a sudden, your object that you own isn't as clear because there's this thing in it that means that you don't really own it and you can prove you don't own it because you don't have the right to fix it. And it doesn't work or doesn't work right or whichever, depending on what it is, until some authorized agent comes out and makes sure you didn't do anything you weren't supposed to do and approves it and makes sure everything is checked off in the computer. So do you own that thing? Now, meanwhile, what's your tractor doing? It's gathering all that data. Isn't that great? You can go log on to the website. You go look at the data. You say, oh, wow, I need more water over here. It needs more nitrogen over there or whatever it is. Maybe we need a little potassium going on, some potash going on. We need something. We got to do the thing. And so you have this really detailed map and that's great because you can say you're using less water to get more effective irrigation. You're using less fertilizer or minerals to, to more effectively achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. You're doing less work having to aerate because you're not aerating kind of blind. You're only aerating where the soil's impacted or whatever. Great except that that data isn't yours either. Your tractor, you driving your tractor on the farm is what generates the data. So if it was your camera that you brought from Canon or whatever, and you took a picture of your farm, it would be your picture. And if it's a really good, if you're, say you're a farmer and a photographer and you took a really good picture of a farm, you could sell that as a stock photo or as a art piece of art. It's your intellectual property. You own it. Canon doesn't own the picture you took, but the data you generate with your tractor while you're driving around to take your picture, turns out the, cam the camera and the tractor are somehow different pieces of equipment because the data you generate with the camera, even if it's a digital camera, is yours, your intellectual property. But the data your tractor is generating is not your intellectual property. It is property of, say, John Deere or whatever company owns the tractor. And they turn around and can sell that data to make a profit off the data you're generating. And that generation of profit uh, is, that, that sale is generation of profit for them, not for you, even though you gathered the data that you don't own. And then at the same time, uh, they're selling it a lot of times to futures traders who will then bet against your yields um, and devalue the products of your farm because they have extraordinarily high-powered computers to analyze the reams and reams and reams of agricultural data that people's tractors are providing for them that the farmer doesn't even have the capacity to say, you know what, you're using that data against my interest, so I don't sell it to you. I don't want to sell it. You don't have that option, actually. You don't get to decide that. That is decided by the person who manufactured the tractor. That would be like Canon getting to come in and decide which pictures you're allowed to sell um, or display even uh, or what lens you're allowed to attach to your camera. Um, and an authorized person has to come out and push a button on it to make it work plug a thing into it after you switch the lens or something. I mean, just, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. So ownership in the digital realm is weird, really weird, right? So we're still in the devices though, like your cell phone. Your cell phone can record every keystroke you ever do. In theory, it could record, it could screenshot your screen at all times. So you couldn't even communicate in pictures and memes. It could screenshot, it could be running a, a software that screenshots your screen at all times and then does a scan for text and scans all the text out and, and saves it in a database. That's, I don't think it is doing that, but it could. It has a microphone in it, has a camera, has multiple cameras in it pointing away from you and toward you. So it could be watching you and listening to you at all times. We have reasons to believe that it probably is doing that more often than you think it is or want it to. How 
phone carrying cases with shutters for the cameras and maybe plugs for the microphones. How those don't exist, I don't understand. My phone case could have a shutter on the back for the for the main camera and on the front for the front-facing camera. If I want to use the camera, I just have to flip them open manually. But no such device really exists, or at least they don't promote them. That's really, really strange. Your laptop has a camera on it that's probably staring at you most of the time. It's supposed to have like a little light to tell you if it's on or not, but what if it has a thing that just turns the light off and runs the camera and it's recording you while you're typing or reading or whatever else you do using your devices? Um, but it's just collecting an awful lot of data, not just the data of what you do. Like if I go on Twitter, right, and this is going to be more like the privacy side, but if I put stuff out, on Twitter, okay, that's public. I posted it in public. It's now in the public area. But what about my direct messages? Like, is that public? Like, no, but technically Twitter has the ability to read it. Even if it's, like I said, end-to-end -end encrypted, your Google keyboard can, can or whatever, iOS keyboard or whatever, can record every keystroke you make. It could be screenshotting your screen and, uh, and, and raking it for text. And so you're generating a lot of data. Do you own that data? No, you don't own that data. They own that data. You don't own that data. You generated the data. You produce the data. It is in any other domain in the world, your intellectual property. But because it's on a device, it's not your intellectual property anymore. Something is wrong here. Well, guess what? It turns out that this is an extraordinarily exploitable problem. A lot of our issues are happening because of mass surveillance programs being run by our intelligence communities, heard of the Patriot Act, all of the surveillance is made very, very easy because you don't own your data. Well, what in the hell is that? Ownership of digital property is much less clear. So that rolls into the other big, big example. Remember when we all got mad about the Napster thing because Napster came out and people were sharing MP3s? People stopped listening on cassettes and records so much and CDs. They're bulky. You have to have them. They get scratched. They fall apart. They get break, blah, blah, blah. And now all we have, we all have these things, MP3s. All the music you want, tiny little device in your pocket can hold like a hundred CDs worth of music. Now it's literally like a million, um, can hold insane amounts of music. You can listen to your music anywhere you want. Okay. Do you, do you own the MP3? Well, if I own an MP3, if I own it, right? This is the same question about the contents of the book, by the way, Metallica, let's say, because they were at the center of this lawsuit and scandal. Um, Metallica records a song, say it's enter Sandman, and um, I get the MP3. Now, you could copy a tape, you could copy a CD and all these things, and that was, we all knew, kind of illegal. But there were a lot of limitations to what you could do. You certainly couldn't resell them, but there were a lot of limitations to what you could do with that because it was time-consuming, it required physical media. Well, with an MP3, it's a little bit different. Now I own this MP3. If I own the MP3, so I have a computer, I let's say I purchase it. Let's just be completely on the up and up. I purchase an MP3 or I purchase the CD, uh, a Metallica, and I put it in and I, and I rip it and I, I have the MP3s on my computer so I can listen to them with my computer or with my phone or whatever. Okay. So I have that MP3. I bought access to that music, just like I bought access to the contents of a book that I don't have the intellectual property for. Right. So the question becomes about reproduction. Um, I'm not supposed to reproduce it at all. Physical media made it hard to do it at scale. If you got caught doing it at scale and selling it, you're going to get in trouble. But now if I own that MP3, 
of Metallica, of Enter Sandman, I can do whatever I want with it. I can sell it. I can give it away. Well, we all know we can't sell it, but can I give it away? Can I go on Napster and let people, anybody who wants that MP3 download it? Well, that undercuts the sales of the album. If somebody wanted to buy the Metallica album because they wanted to have their own copy to listen to of Enter Sandman, they can just go download Enter Sandman and they don't have to buy it. And it's utterly ignorant and belies everything. I remember being you know, a teenager at the time when all this was happening or early twenties and being like, hell yeah, free music. And so literally free music was the idea. Um, so you can now make it so that millions of people can get a copy of that without anybody ever having to buy it, which undercuts the market for it completely. And then more than just kind of spirit, it undercuts the concept of you can't reproduce and distribute somebody else's intellectual property, which I say was Metallica's, but it wasn't. It was the recording labels. It was the record industry. And then you get into these nasty arguments about whether the record industry is exploiting the artists so they don't deserve it anyway, blah, blah, blah. This is all stupid. But this necessitates a completely new model. So the model that came out was, well, let's not do it that way. Let's do the bulk of our listening to music, not through playlists, but through streaming services. Do you own anything that you stream? Well, this is literally exactly the you will own nothing and you will be happy. Everything you have, you will rent and will be delivered by drone model. It's all meant to be a subscription model. So what the fuck is ownership now, right? So you had that guy. I need to figure out who this guy was. I need to look it up and write his name down because he's a European guy and I forget his name. But he's one of the big CEOs that's a big shot with the World Economic Forum and he's doing an interview and he says in the interview that people don't want products. You don't want products. Products come with responsibility. Like I'm looking, I mentioned I have a knife here. This was a gift somebody sent me. It's a very nice hand forged knife with a nice, you know, some kind of burl for a handle. Like I have to treat this thing. I have to like clean it. I have to oil the blade. I'm supposed to occasionally oil the handle. I a lot of responsibility comes with owning a thing. And what this guy's arguing is, well, people don't want the responsibility of owning a thing, taking care of it. They want the benefit of the thing. They don't want the thing itself. He says, people don't want the product. They want the benefit of the product. So what if we could retain ownership as the manufacturer and sell them the benefit of the product? Do you own that then? There's your streaming service or your subscription service. Do you own the movies you watch on Netflix? Do you own the movies that you watch on, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever. No, you pay however much money and for however long you're allowed to watch, usually like 24 hours or one view, you're allowed to watch the movie. And then you don't have it anymore. Then it's gone. And technically you never owned it in the first place. You just bought access to it. And since all you did was buy access to it, they could literally change it at any time. They can change the digital text of a book that way. They can change the film. They could delete scenes, add scenes, twist things, edit the, the sound. They could do all kinds of stuff. They could be a completely different thing than the thing you think you're getting. And so like, so you end up with a radio edit or a sanitized version. They could do that with your music and the streaming services. That's literally what the radio edit is. And so, huh, do you own the things that you're subscribing to? No, you don't. You don't have any ownership of it. Their ownership is retained by the manufacturer. Well, is that what's going on with the John Deere tractor? Well, not quite, but kind of, but it is actually the model. Think about those scooters that people ride in the cities. If you've never been to a city, they're these scooters you ride. They're everywhere. You pay however much paying using an app and you're allowed to drive the scooter. Then you get off the scooter and just leave it wherever the hell you are. Some people go around and make money picking up the scooters and taking them back to centrally located scooter places, but then there are just scooters around. And if you have the app, you can pick up the app and you can do that. Then, okay, fine. So do you own the scooter? No, you don't own the scooter. You most certainly do not own the scooter. And 
same thing with zip bikes. You could have the same thing with zip cars. In fact, the model that the World Economic Forum is pushing for car ownership in the future is basically kind of like Uber, except even if we take out the self-driving part of the car, except nobody owns any of the cars at all. Um, you like kind of the community shares the cars or the company owns cars and has or the state does and gives them to communities or makes them available to communities and you uh, tap into them and then, you know, you say, I want to be able to drive the car and blah, blah, blah. And either it comes to you or if it's self-driving or you go find it where the zip cars are or whatever parked in, in designated locations, you could ride a train to the central area. There's a parking lot. You take a car, blah, blah, blah. You use your app. You pay for it. For the service, you get the benefit of the car, but you don't have to actually own a car. You don't have to keep it up, blah, 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 the whole thing, right? And technically, they even go to the point where nobody owns the cars. In fact, they say that the cars own themselves. I could read that piece for you. I had no idea what the hell they're talking about. It's really bizarre. But this is the future of car ownership. Nobody you don't own, nobody owns a car. Everybody shares all the cars. It's total ride sharing or car sharing all the time everywhere. And it's like, huh. So you don't own that thing. And, well, how do you make sure that you avoid the tragedy of the commons when that happens? Well, the tragedy of the commons is if there's something owned in common, nobody really gives a shit about it, so they eventually exploit it and break it. Like how people tend to drive rental cars pretty harder than they drive their regular car. Well, what you do with a rental car is that they're on the hook for any damages, internal, external, even dirt, even a messy interior, and have to pay for it. Well, it's the same thing with these zip car things, but since it's completely decentralized and you're not taking it to and from a guy who checks it off when you leave and checks it off again when you return with pictures and all that, what would just be is uh, social credit. So if things are reported it's wrong with it and you were the one who used it and whatever, uh, your social credit gets dinged, you have less access later, it costs more later, blah, 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 whatever. They can contour all kinds of systems to deal with it. But that necessitates a social credit system attached to the use of the subscription models. And then all of a sudden you can see the pricing and locked in and locked out of access to the things that you don't own because they're not yours. If you go buy a car and you want to take it Dukes of Hazard style, as long as you don't damage anybody else's property, you can go, you can go like if you have just like a big field or whatever, you can build a freaking ramp and jump your car and blow your horn and play the, you know, play the, play Dixie on the horn and, and blow the damn charger up for all you care. You can literally go blow your, buy a car and blow it up if you want to, as long as you don't damage anybody else's property. So you can do whatever the hell you want with your own car. You can't do anything if you don't own the car if you're only buying the benefits of the car now say well see james is saying you would want to blow up your own car no i might say that you want to drive it places you're not supposed to go according to the stupid official rules or that your social credit system says you might want to drive it in a way that's not indicative of what they want you to do you might want to do a lot of things with the car then you might want to take it apart and put it back together maybe you're into that like you're mechanically minded there are a lot of things you might want to do with the car that you don't get to do you can't do like if you wanted to go buy a $500 car to learn how to take cars apart and put them back together so that you can learn to be a mechanic, you can't do that. You have to go, like, this is this is a completely different model. So the question then, these are all just big examples to illustrate that it's not clear what ownership means in this weird world where we have abstract property like copyrights, trademarks, and so on, and then where, where the reproduction is very, very quick and easy because of digital. And then in this digital space where um, you literally can own nothing and have subscriptions to lots of things that other people own, but how can you have your right to property secured, which again, defends your right of conscience, which defends 
what it means to be an individual, in other words, how can you have classical liberalism if you don't have a clear articulation of what digital property rights look like, what digital ownership looks like? So this is a major challenge. So I know that was a lot, and I'll try not to be as long about privacy, but it's because it's very similar. But we don't have a robust concept of the individual or of what it means for the individual to have secured property rights. All this shit with the subscription models, with the, with the you won't, you'll own nothing and be happy, you don't want the product, you want the benefit of the product, all of this is actually a way for them to get around property rights by making you not want to own anything. And when you don't own anything, you actually lose one of the essential things that allows you to be an individual. You can't be your own person with liberty if they can turn off your subscription services, let's say to electricity or gas or other necessities, if they can turn off your subscription service because they don't like the way you behave or your money or access to buy food or what certain foods or whatever else. You or medical care, if they can control that because you don't own anything, you don't own any money either. You just have these credits that have to do with how you behave and whether or not you did the jobs they forced you to do. If you don't own anything, they can compel your belief. That's the whole point of a social credit system. The whole point is that they can compel you to start acting and believing and professing and with sophisticated enough technology that dips into your privacy, which is domain number three that we have to be articulating right now, they can do a lot more than that. They can actually check to make sure in a sense that you actually believe the shit that they want you to believe in order to be able to fully participate in society. Um, because John Locke was for anything that he got wrong. John Locke was right about something essential. You can't be a free human being. You can't be a, uh, individual with your own individual liberties. If they can take away one of your inalienable rights to life, liberty, or property, that dips into also privacy, which you could say is to do with the property of your mind and your thoughts or whatever. It's a little abstract. But the same question arises here. What in the hell is private? I was in a conversation recently with Benjamin Boyce and his wife uh, over clam chowder and fish and chips in Tacoma. We were talking about all this um, trans stuff and all the queer theory and the gender identities. And so Benjamin's wife, Leslie, asks me this hard question, which is, um, what, if I was going to constitute a new kind of sexual ethic or ethics for society, how would I do that? What would it look like? And I thought about it for a few seconds. And the first thing I said is, well, it all has to start with an articulation of not what's acceptable in public versus what's acceptable in private. But deeper than that, we actually have to be able to articulate what, what is private where, where are you, when, where and when are you in private? Where and when are you in public? There are other aspects to this as well. What does it mean to consent? Da, da, da. But like, if I go sign up for a forum, let's say I'm 14 years old and lie about my age and sign up for a forum. Did I consent to be on the forum? That's a question. I think that the answer is, uh, no, because I don't think that the 14 year old is legally capable and probably even cognitively capable of giving full consent in that regard. There's a kind of a restricted or limited sense of consent for younger people than that, but, or than, than full adulthood. But beside the point, an articulation of the difference between the public and private domain, and in fact, the recognition that 
A, they're fuzzy, and B, they're a whole lot fuzzier than they used to be. And in that fuzzy space, there's got to be a lot of deep philosophical work. This isn't just about saving classical liberalism. We don't have to call it classical. Classical liberalism might be the thing that fit in the 19th century, 18th century, and we need something for the 21st century. But we don't have a clear idea of the public domain and the private domain. I think we mostly generally do accept, although not everybody, I hear this from the woke and I hear this from the from the so-called dissident right, that what you do in private has a lot to do, almost like mystical powers, with society at large. So no, you shouldn't be allowed to think racist thoughts or tell racist jokes in private. That's the woke. And no, you shouldn't be allowed to participate in sexual immorality in private because it necessarily trickles out. It necessarily upholds a system of either racism or uh, degeneracy. And so no, you shouldn't even be allowed to do it in private. And I think that the majority of us don't agree with that and are, would be concerned by that. That's their articulation, and you can see the logic. I don't think I have to spell out the logic. Um, and you can also probably see the flaws in the logic, um, which is basically if you can keep your shit together in public, then it's nobody's business. Like literally the answer to what do you do in private is none of your business. It is none of your business. And we, I think we've largely got this sense that what occurs between consenting adults in private spaces, whether it's racist jokes, whether it's sitting around eating lunch, whether it's some kind of sexuality or practice that's outside of, you know, generally accepted whatever, I don't know, and cinnamon instead of vanilla, I don't know. What am I talking about here? Hot peppers instead of vanilla? than spicy vanilla, then if it's in private, then f fine. Who cares? It doesn't actually have an impact further out. The, the mindset it creates in you need not leak into public if you can keep the domain separate. But we're also keenly aware that this fetish crap showing up at pride parades violates something. Like That's in public, and there are children there, in fact, what there are is people who are not consenting to wanting to participate in that present, whether it's people themselves who don't want to participate in fetish life or their children who are necessarily brought into it and exposed to a generative theme, as it were, that forces the question in the conversation. Drag queens in classrooms, these all violate something to do with the um, kind of not just decorum, but expectation of behavior in public because it violates something to do with the conscience of the individual who is subjected to the thing happening in public. You want to wear that shit? Close the door. Close the curtains. Have at it. No one cares. But you don't get to do it in the street. And um, it's not just even about public decency, though that's a good way to put it. There is something further than that, which is that you are injecting into somebody's conscience something that goes beyond what they would consent to having injected into their conscience. And uh, you need a robust theory of the individual in order to do that. But it turns out you also have to have a clear articulation of where public and private are. So here are some challenges that technology in the 21st century have brought to the idea of private. Because I think in the 18th century, you could take very much for granted that if you went into your house and you closed the door and you drew the curtains and nobody could see what was going on, then you were inside your house and you could do whatever you damn well pleased so long as you weren't hurting anybody. Okay. So you just took for granted. You don't hear the, among these uh, inalienable rights, Thomas Jefferson didn't say life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, 
and some privacy or a reasonable expectation of privacy. He never said any of that. Privacy is never really mentioned. It's been affirmed by the Supreme Court to a degree, but it's a very complicated thing. How much privacy are we do? And now it's really messy. And I already mentioned one of the reasons, the devices. Your device can literally be spying on you all the time. We know because of Edward Snowden that things were spying on you all the time. We know because of uh, the Twitter files that they were reading people's direct messages. We know lots of things uh, that are gross violations of privacy. So you see, when you're on social media, chances are you are interacting in a digital public square while in private. How many times have you sat at a dinner even with other people, your family, business, whatever, and you're texting somebody and you're texting them something you most definitely would not talk about publicly, but you're having that. It's very So you're very private in the fact inside your, your relationship with your phone with whomever else you're texting. Maybe it's your wife. You're texting her something a little bit um, spicy vanilla or cinnamon, and you're at a, you know, just dashing it off real quick in a lull in a meeting or whatever. Okay, so maybe that's happened. And you're in public, but you're engaging in private in a space that is actually kind of private, except at Google Keyboard's recording everything. So it's not really private. Or you're in your direct messages and you have an expectation that the communication is private, even if it's not. Um, or you're even on an, an encrypted thing that you've taken some pains to make sure you think is private, but maybe the software is able to do key recording and that's possibly dangerous because some of the things you type might be passwords to get into, say, your financial stuff that you don't really want somebody at Google deciding that they want to read or hand over to uh, a government agent who decides they want to mess with your life or whatever, uh, or any other malicious agent. So this is you have a reasonable expectation to privacy and you live as though you have a reasonable expectation to privacy and there's this blurring of the public and private domain. You probably think, yeah, if I post it on Twitter, that's public or social media in general, but the idea that the keyboard's recording all of my keystrokes, that wasn't really part of the bargain. Like, I don't really keep that in the back of my head while I'm trying to, you know, do everything that I'm trying to do. Like, I actually kind of think that the things I'm typing are between me and whoever I'm typing them to, which is a reasonable expectation of privacy. So the devices are a huge one. It's huge. We know this is a major problem with all that ed tech that the World Economic Forum incentivized with the public-private partnership I talked about earlier, because we know that a lot of the ed tech is designed to actually gather data, whether it's biometric data, whether it's paying attention, like eye tracking with cameras, whether it's these weird helmets kids in fucking China are wearing, these little like devices that tell when they're paying attention and what their brainwaves are doing, like all kinds of shit. There's heart math, which is tracking your heart rate and skin conductance and other while you're going through math classes. These Apple Watches and other device devices people wear for fitness, uh, in addition to those and, and other brands of the same thing, are recording all kinds of biometric data all the time. And who has access to that? Like, for real, is not is that private? Like, you're by yourself with this thing on your wrist. Who the hell? You don't even know who has access to that. So this is like this weird surveillance universe where you think you're in private, but you're not in private. So here's another example of that, though, is when you're very keenly aware of this when you're in cities like London, there's fucking cameras everywhere. Like, okay, I get it. If I go into a store, maybe there's going to be cameras, security cameras or whatever. That's fine. It's private property. But public property is covered in cameras. Blade Runner people are going around 
for these traffic cameras to decide if you're driving the wrong kind of car for the amount of emissions or whatever and like knocking them down. Cameras have facial recognition technology that's increasingly sophisticated, gate recognition technology that's increasingly sophisticated. So they can really kind of track you all the time. So here's a question. When you're out in public, are you in public or are you in private? Or what is actually the real question is you are in public, but what is the reasonable expectation of privacy that you have? I don't think that anybody's reasonable expectation of privacy includes nobody gets to see me ever even though I'm in public. None of my stuff is going to be noticed or recognized, my behaviors. But at the other end of the spectrum, I don't think anybody's reasonable expectation to privacy includes the idea that I am being constantly surveilled by technology that can not only track me but identify me and that everywhere I go in public spaces, I'm under this surveillance that could be analyzed by who knows what and by whom and when and sold to whatever. And my all of my movements can be therefore tracked by the state or by third parties that are contracting with the state. All of my, and not just tracked, but um, that they can identify me, they can make reliable statistical guesses as to what my motivations for my behaviors might be, depending on how I'm behaving. Am I looking over my shoulder a lot? Does it detect that? Does it think I'm nervous or suspicious or up to something? I don't think a reasonable expectation to privacy contains the idea that you should never be able to be witnessed in public, but it certainly also doesn't include the idea that you are identifiable and surveilled 100% of the time in a panopticon everywhere you go in public. That's a thing. What is a reasonable expectation to privacy and how do we secure that reasonable expectation to privacy given the proliferation of cheap cameras, cheap microphones, AI that can do the kinds of tasks like facial recognition, um, statistical inference about what you might be up to, gate analysis and recognition and so on. What is your reasonable expectation to privacy and how do we protect that? Well, certainly not with a fucking Patriot Act, that's for sure, but We've got to think about these things. Without this answer to this question, there's no private. Without private, there's the ability to enter into your conscience, which is sacred. If they can enter into that, they can manipulate you in ways that enable, like they can they can threaten to expose things you think are important to keep secret. They can um, track your psychological profile. Like this is the thing that they do a lot with these stupid quizzes people were taking, but I'm sure they have more sophisticated and subtle methods now where they make very sophisticated. And I know they're doing it with the ed tech is making, cause they say they are very sophisticated and very granular, not just like big five personality inventory, but very granular, uh, detailed psychological profiles of individuals. And then they use that to make inferences, but they could also use that to tap into certain marketing patterns what kinds of marketing work on people like you or specifically on you? The AI, you could be chatting with an AI chat bot through some kind of a help service, not even really realize it, thinking it's just somebody texting you or whatever. And then this thing could actually be an AI that knows you better than you do, or the propaganda that they feed you might be contoured to that. And as that improves the ability to make AI, to make video and images and propaganda and all this, that's perfectly tailored to your psychology. This is technology that's not far around the corner. What is a reasonable expectation to privacy that we have about the intrusion of corporate and state interests or even uh, malicious interests into our psyches through this technology? And how do we secure it? Those are real questions. 
then we don't even have to talk about the cameras and the microphone and everything attached to your device, the fact that it's recording, and then your behavior um, online where things you believe are private are not secured. These are real questions, but my belief is that we can't defend the inalienable rights of the individual unless we understand ownership and understand privacy, because both of those create gaps in which the individual becomes a manipulable piece of the economic and political superstructure. In other words, you are no longer an individual, you are part of a Borg. They use nudge theory to nudge people into beliefs. They have this whole kind of nudge units. This is all tied up not just with marketing, but with actually like military and intelligence that's being deployed on home civilizations or home uh, citizens of, of, of the native civilization. I mean, this is, this is a freaking disaster. And so the classical liberal model, and in fact, all these stupid competitors that are waving around aren't actually addressing any of that. The classical liberal model cannot defend itself if, A, we don't know what the word liberal refers to, first of all, but B, if it can't give an articulation of what the individual is, what ownership for an individual means, given all of this new technology. Like, I'm not going back to freaking CDs to listen to music if I want to listen to music. I'm just not. So let's figure out how to deal with that and Maybe, though, I don't want to, like, have a streaming service or a subscription service for my underwear. Like, I don't want that. I don't want a distributist model handing out what I'm allowed to have according to how good of a global citizen or a Christian nationalist or whatever other ideology it happens to be that I have to subscribe to in order to get my distribution, my government cheese, as it were, my full participation in society. I don't want that. So I need to know what ownership means as an individual and be able to secure a reasonable definition of ownership as an individual um, if I'm going to protect my ability to have a free conscience, which is, I still think, the center of what it means to be an individual, and then simultaneously I have to have some expectation of privacy. So there are some problems with classical liberalism as it's running into the 21st century, and those problems, as I've summarized them, are three. First, and then this is it, and we'll shut up. First, we're under a provocation from an ongoing communist cultural revolution that is trying to unseat classical liberalism, and if it can do so directly, it will, and if it cannot, it will use a post-liberal reaction from the so-called dissident right to achieve its means by a two-step. Second, there is a huge amount of confusion based on conceptual polysemy, to use the fancy term once again, in terms of what it means to be liberal in the first place. Liberal is conflated with progressive, but also with neoliberal, and those things are not the same thing. And massive amounts of confusion, you can't defend something if you don't even know what it is. So that's another problem. So liberalism is being attacked, is number one, by literally a communist provocation, an anti-liberal provocation. Secondly, we can't defend liberalism because we don't know what liberalism means. We don't know what the concept is. We don't know what it points to. It's muddy, it's watered down, it's confused, it's mixed with a lot of other things that in fact are not actually liberal. And then third of all, when we do have that philosophy, even if we did know what it points to, it has some real challenges that come with the technological changes that we faced in our environment in the past 250 years. And those include a need for a clear and updated articulation of what an individual is and how it fits into a social network without losing its individuality. Secondly, 
what it means to own things as an individual so that its inalienable right to property and pursuit of happiness can be maintained. And thirdly, what it means to have privacy in an increasingly surveilled and digital world with increasing technology that allows you to extract enormous amounts of information, usable information from that environment very quickly, mechanically, by third parties and state actors that ought not well, they could act maliciously and also malicious third parties who would use it against us. And so this concept of privacy is necessary because if we don't have privacy, then we don't have the sanctity of the arena of conscious conscience in the individual that is the defining characteristic of the individual. And thus you don't have individual rights in the first place and thus liberalism falls. So these are the problems with classical liberalism in the 21st century. It's under attack. We don't know what it is. And even when we do know what it is, it needs to articulate what's an individual and what does it mean for an individual to have privacy and to own things. If we don't start answering those questions, classical liberalism will fall. We will march off into some post-liberal direction. That liberal post-liberal direction might be a postmodern communism or that turns very brutally modern. Um, in other words, the World Economic Forum, uh, woke United Nations model, CCP model, or we might lurch into a post-liberal reaction that because it hasn't bothered to try to answer these questions, it's going to suffer the exact same problems. The exact same threats are going to come to it. And it will build a similar apparatus for control that the thing we're trying to fight will try to build or is trying to build in order to control people so that they can avoid answering these fundamental questions and articulating who we actually are, what to do with who we are, and why it matters. <laughs>